Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, welcome to another session here on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. And I'm thrilled to be here today with Marshall Lane. Uh, welcome, Marshall. Hi, how you doing, please? Glad to be but, here. Yeah, it's great to connect with you. We've never met, but I do feel a kinship with you. We both uh, did significant time uh, in prison. I was in for 14 years on drug charges. If people aren't familiar with my story already, and and we're going to talk about your experience of going through incarceration and coming back into the world now. I'm very happy that you're out in the world and doing well, and what that journey was like for you and the the influence of. Uh, your involvement with meditation and Buddhist practice and things like that. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, me too. So Marshall, um, you know, I know that you dealt with addiction in your life and, and, you know, our classic recovery stories often have to do with, you know, what it was like then, what happened and then what it's like now. Um, so let's start with your journey through addiction and recovery. Um, you know, uh, what, what was, the experience of, of being caught up in addiction like for you and, uh, uh, you know, and then finding yourself in prison and, uh, and, and, you know, well, maybe we'll just start there. Like what, you know, what, what was it in your memory? Like when you were really caught up in your addiction and then finding your way into prison, just what was that experience like for you? Well, to encapsulate that whole experience, I guess it's beyond words, but I'll kind of, Again, where you know the addiction started is when I was younger, right? I grew up in a family uh, with um, some mental health issues and addiction issues. When I was uh, seven years old, my parents got divorced. Uh, my mother was an alcoholic, and my father had, uh, you know, a severe bipolar disorder, uh, and he stopped taking his medication. And I, I think between my mother's drinking and uh, his manic episodes is, you know, kind of what dissolved that marriage. So my sister and I were stuck staying with my mother and um, my father had moved out. He would visit like every other weekend, see us on Wednesdays and stuff. And, uh, you know, I was very, we were poor. We were, we were very poor. And we, uh, my sister and I grew up in a, in a wealthy town. My sister was about two years younger than me. So uh, life was like very unhappy at that age. Um, you know, I was always jealous of the other kids. Um, my mother could be quite mean. She drank heavily. I think she kind of was uh, unhappy at the fact that now she was a single mother that had to provide for two children, you know. Um, and there was just a lot of struggles. So uh, when I was young, because of my behavior, I was diagnosed with an ADHD. Um, I was kind of segregated to some of these kind of like special classes. Uh, they they call them uh, the SPED classes, <laughs> special education. Um, and I just felt like an outcast. And I, I think like it was my attempt to connect with people. So I would act out and misbehave to get attention and things. And uh, the punishment was always pretty severe for that. And then I remember when I was like, I think like around 12 years old, you know, I'd started smoking cigarettes, stealing my mother's alcohol and drinking. I'm not going to say like I was like uh, uh, I was really like enamored with the alcohol, 
but it was a way for me to feel more mature. Um, you know, it helped me connect with some of the other disadvantaged kids. Um, cigarettes, I enjoyed smoking cigarettes. And uh, I think as far as addiction goes, like that kind of began when I was introduced to marijuana around the age of 12 or 13. And, um, you know, I, I really, I fell in love with that drug because uh, when I smoked marijuana, I felt good. It was shortly after I began selling marijuana for two reasons. One, so I could have enough money to buy marijuana, but also uh, I, I found that other people would like like me if I had, you know, I had weed on. You know, it's just my way to connect with people. And uh, that just became a lifestyle for me. And at that age, I had, had a lot of problems, obviously, from like the drug use and misbehavior. Uh, I was also prescribed Adderall, too, with is an amphetamine and uh, I abused that drug as well and uh, I just I kind of disconnected from society and I kind of became uh, enmeshed in this kind of underworld type of life I had no respect for authority whatsoever um, you know I was mistreated I didn't trust anybody there was a point in my life where I was out of the home my mom kicked me out and uh I was living with my father and stepmother. I had a couple of stepbrothers. My stepmother didn't want me there. So I was on the street. They were, <laughs> they were trying to get me. They wanted to put me in DYS. So I was staying with a friend of mine. And, um, you know, like some family members would call and ask how I was doing and if I should go into social services. And, um, but I said I was fine. Ultimately, I, I, I kind of got through that. Uh, I remember there were some threats involved that if they put me in social services that, you know, I would report my fate, my mother and things of that nature. So I was just left alone for a year. And then I remember when I was uh, 14 years old, living with my friend and his mother. Uh, my father had a, he had a, he had a mental break. He had a breakdown and um, he was struggling his relationship with uh, my stepmother. And he had to go to a mental hospital. I had to go see him. That was tough for me to see my father in that state, that uh, state of, um, you know, mental illness. And he was there for a while. He was highly medicated. But eventually they, they let him out and he had to kind of survive on his own. And um, because of my father's mental health issues, he... Um, it was interesting. When I was out on my own, he, he kind of wasn't interested in helping me. But once he was on his own, he was alone. He wanted somebody to connect with. So we reached out and um, asked if I'd move in with him, which I did. And uh, my father wasn't a disciplinarian, unlike other situations, my mother and stepmother. And he pretty much told me I could do whatever I want. And I was already involved in drug dealing at a young age, doing all kinds of other illicit things and stuff. So. You know, that's kind of like how my life progressed, like petty arrests, drunken disorderlies, possessions of like marijuana, and, uh, hallucinogenics, uh, fighting, doing all kinds of things, petty thefts, things of that nature. Um, I get probation here and there. And uh, so that's kind of where I like I made that lifestyle choice. And I made that lifestyle choices because. I found that the only, I, I thought in my mind, the only way I could connect to people and the only way I could feel good is through drug use. There was a short period of my life. I remember when I was uh, in my like 
20, 20 years old. Like right when I was coming into my 20s, I'd met a girl, we were dating, we had a really strong relationship. Uh, I got away from a lot of the substance use and kind of troubled friends that I'd been spending time with. You know, like the idea was we're going to get married. She's very responsible, uh, come from a good family. And uh, I was working on fishing boats. And uh, I came home from a fishing trip. We had got word from the Coast Guard that some of my family died. Uh, I believe I was like, uh, I was just, I was 20 at the time. And it was my sister. My little sister had passed away. My girlfriend ended up telling me. And uh, I was heartbroken, you know, because her and I were kind of like, you know, we lived through like a lot of trauma and, and like we we're connected. And I'd already envisioned a life, my sister in the future. And to lose her was devastating. So then I began with the behavior. I could cope with that. I started partying, drinking a lot, hanging out with like at bars, you know, back with like the old, the old crew. And um, that's where my drug use really kind of spiraled out of control. I got introduced to cocaine in the bars and I had started selling weed again. And cocaine wasn't something that I was really interested in. It didn't really um, chemically uh, mix with me well, but I found that like a lot of people were interested in it. People started asking if I could get it. And um, I was able to get it through one of my connections. I also got introduced to, um, it was Vicodin's. I, you know, I, I'd used like pharmaceutical based opioids and benzos and stuff before, you know, occasionally they were all right, but the biking in for some reason, I just really, really fell in love with it. So a, a buddy of mine used to trade coke for biking in and I got addicted to that real quick. I liked the way it made me feel. It gave me that confidence. It gave me that good feeling that I was always looking for. So two, three days a week turned into like every day I had to hustle harder so that I could afford my addictions. I was working and hustling constantly. And um, that turned into Oxy 80s because they were pushing those during that huge farming push. And um, you know, eventually, you know, just trying to sustain this run uh, of opioid dependence, you know, I, I uh, kept trafficking and bringing in more drugs and selling more drugs. I ended up getting busted by the feds for trafficking uh, crystal meth and, and heroin, which was something I promised myself I would never do. I was like, I'll never sell those. But yeah, there I was. And then I got, uh, I got busted by the feds. I got busted with a girl I'd grown up with. Her and I had been selling drugs for a long time on and off. She ended up getting three and a half years, which is a two-person indictment. And I ended up getting uh, 12 and a half years in the federal prison. And before that, I'd only done 20 days in county. So it was like a hard hit. And uh, that's where that's where my addiction uh, it, it, it led me to that point. You know, I'm gonna take some space and, and, and uh, fleet. I'll let you if you want to open up with any more. Is there any more questions, or would you like me to continue? Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge, you know, Marshall, all the all the pain in that journey. Um, you know, growing up with the alcoholism and mental illness in your family, and losing your sister, and um, yeah, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, and I and I hope people realize that uh, not to take away from the uniqueness of anyone's story, but so many people who find themselves incarcerated have similar stories of how they ended up involved with addiction and selling drugs or whatever it might be, you know, that, um, you know, 
ultimately to turn our own lives around. We got to embrace responsibility for our own choices, our own actions. But, you know, kids are kind of programmed by their circumstances to end up in, in, in trouble. And, uh, you know, I, I just really want to let you know that I could, that I hear the pain in, in your story. And, um, yeah. And, um, so when you found, when you did get sentenced to federal prison, um, was that like the wake up call for you? And did you get into uh, recovery right away or did you stay in the game for a while in prison and then find your way into recovery? Because some, you know, it happens lots of different ways for different people. That's a good question. Um, and yeah, oftentimes it's very convoluted. So yeah, it was a huge wake up call. And, you know, I remember being sick, like in the beginning, um, I was scrambling to get like my hands on like people sleeping meds. I was still really craving hard to get out of that, like that miserable state of you know, post withdrawal from opioid use. It was tough. The depression was insane. Like the world's coming to an end was my thinking. And I drink the white lightning in some of the places I was at. White lightning is like the, like the, you know what I mean? Like the, the moonshine that they make in there. They make in prison a hooch or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they distill it. They stick a stinger in there and they kind of like evaporate the alcohol off just mix with water. And, you know, I was trying to get high if I could. Like, that was like my thing. And, but I started reading. Like, that was, that was the thing. Uh, I became, because I, I don't know if it's an ADHD thing or what, but like not having stimulation uh, was a painful thing. So I would just read. I, I was interested in religion and philosophy. Like, all these Christians running around telling me these things and you know I you know I, I wanted to investigate that for myself I'd read a lot of uh, a lot of fiction books but eventually I, I got just straight into nonfiction I had, like philosophy um, I was big into science uh, I just I I'd read that I used to read the newspaper every day started learning about politics things like that so anything new anything that was interesting I just started reading it and as my sentence progressed, uh, you know, they sent me to a medium over in, uh, in Otisville, New York. And I had passed my GED when I was 18, when I dropped out of high school, they kicked me out. So because my scores were high, they were, they gave me a job as a GED tutor. I, I inquired about it and they said, Oh, you know, you have to retest to do this job. So I started doing a GED tutor job and started thinking about my own education. And, you know, it was really difficult because they got rid of all the uh, Pell Grants. So I had to really network through the institution, network through my family. My family started paying for classes. And there was a woman that was coming in. She was, a uh, uh, her name is uh, Franca Ferrari Bridgers. Um, she was working for Queensboro Community College and she was doing communication courses with us. And she agreed to, she, she liked me. She thought I was smart, and she agreed to sponsor my uh, my associates in psychology. So I did that correspondence while I was in prison, and like I really dug deep into the psychology. Right around that time, I was still in and out, dabbling here and there with like you know substances, very seldomly. And then um, I got back into hustling cigarettes in prison. I was trying to make money, and I started. Um, I was smoking. I smoked some marijuana. And then I smoked K2 and I had a real bad experience with that. During that time is like right when I really started digging into Buddhism. I read this book by um, 
Bhikkhu Bodhi called the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to end suffering. And uh, I just think that, like, the way Bhikkhu Bodhi writes, like, five years earlier, I probably wouldn't even understand a word he was saying, but my reading level had advanced to a point where I was able, in my understanding of, like, you know, philosophy and religion and ethics and psychology and things, where I was able to take that information in, and it was like that missing piece of the puzzle. And uh, I hyper-focused on no use of intoxicants because nobody had ever really given me a good enough reason why I should use intoxicants. And uh, I think like the, the, the Buddhist um, understanding of intoxicants as corrupting the mind so that one can practice spirituality properly and, you know, develop, you know, good conditions for their lives made a lot of sense. I finally was able to, to understand that and see that. So I made that commitment, you know, and, I got away from the like, cigarette selling ring because I was scared I might get in trouble. That was another, that was another motivating factor there, you know, and, uh, I just really focused, started focusing on myself and, um, you know, studying Buddhism. I began reading the Pali canons amongst, you know, other works. I delved into, uh, Mahayana Buddhism to some extent because I, I liked some of the descriptions within, within that, uh, philosophy and like, for years, I just really kind of like dug in hard with like the Buddhism and, you know, along with the psychology and trying to understand who I was going to be when they released me from prison and where I was going to fit in society, what I was going to do with my life. Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of my experience with that. So, Marshall, how long when you first started um, reading Buddhism and that started to create that shift for you, how long had you been in prison at that time? I'd say I've been in prison about five years. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you had been transferred from a higher security prison down to a medium at Otisville? Well, I started at the medium and then they transferred me to Danbury, which was a low security. Uh-huh. And then I went to a camp. I spent like almost five years in a camp. I see. And um, where you were, was, was there anybody else interested in Buddhism or was there a meditation group or anything? Or were you just doing all this on your own? Well, uh, when I was in the, um, I was in the low, when I really kind of like took a hold of Buddhism as my spiritual practice and, uh, they had like a group, but there was only one guy there. So we started working with the prison. We got the volunteer in, we created like a nice little group in Danbury. Then I transferred to Devons in Massachusetts, which is a min it's a minimum security camp. And, uh, we started a little group over there and, you know, it, I would, teach people about buddhism i tell like the buddhist story and things of that nature and you know explain uh you know some of the principles and stuff behind it so we did that and i, I just it was a small camp with like a hundred guys in it I, I did that for like the the remainder of my prison sentence yeah i think people often realize how resourceful um prisoners are when when I don't know what prisoner, human, incarcerated human beings, incarcerated persons, you know, when when you catch that that kind of fire about education, right? When you when you really kind of catch that bug about really wanting to educate yourself and you get kind of get on fire about learning and change, uh, you know, people become really resourceful about putting together resources, starting groups, and often with no support from the institution or very little support from the outside. But uh, but, you know, start self-educating. And that, that sounds like your path was uh, you were you were really kind of learning a lot of self-reliance there and uh, taking responsibility for your own education. 
yeah, def, definitely fleet. And, uh, I think one of the things that like re- would really motivate me is like, I'd ask a lot of questions. Like people would talk to me and tell me things. And then like, I would try to kind of like dig in and find the foundation of that knowledge. And a lot of people would just say things. So I would research it, you know, and I'd look into it, especially like when it comes to religion and philosophy, because uh, people are real quick to tell you something and, you know, tell you, you got to believe this or you should do. But I was always like, but why? Like, what, like what, what's the reasoning behind that? And, like, I guess that curiosity and uh, probably defiance <laughs> is what uh, motivated a lot of that kind of uh, reading and learning. And yeah. You know, Marshall, I remember during my incarceration, um, I mean, just the environment of most prisons and jails and just the whole, it, it can be such an assault on one's own personhood and self-worth. I mean, you know, on a good day, you have maybe only a half dozen kind of really demeaning encounters with either the staff or your fellow prisoners or, you know, it, it takes a lot to maintain a sense of your own innate goodness and self-worth. And so I'm curious what that journey was like for you, especially since I'm sure because of your journey with addiction, uh, you had already experienced a lot of, you know, self-criticism and feelings of guilt and lack of self-worth. So how did you begin to discover the strength uh, you know, and, and what what role maybe did did your study of Buddhism play in that in terms of, you know, finding a way to believe in yourself again and having a sense of your own innate goodness and and, and so forth? I would say I, I'd attribute that to like meta. Um, mm-hmm. And like the meta practice really resonated with me because it talks about kindness, s- focus inward on yourself. And then working itself outwardly and like self-love is, is, is huge. And it's something, yeah, you're right. I struggle with that. I, even to this day, I still struggle with it. And um, a lot of that's probably found in my history and trauma and things. But Buddhism really opened the doors to me understanding self-wellness, self-help, self-love, and then being able to get to a certain point where you're good with that and being able to, you know, then, you know, projected outwards onto the world and the others. Um, and I think bef- before Buddhism, I didn't, if, even if I was trying to do something good or trying to help, I had never really had, you know, no foundation in self-love or self-care. And, uh, you know, and that's probably one of the reasons why I just gluttonously was just hunting, hunting to find things to make me feel good about myself. Um, which isn't the case today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was a very important, the love and kindness practice or meta practice, very important practice for me in prison. I remember we had, I was in a federal prison as well. And there was a, there was like 10 buildings. It was a big place and it was a big track in the kind of in between the buildings and, and uh, in the main yard. And uh, I would get out and walk that track and be reciting the meta statements the whole time. And uh, for myself, initially trying to overcome all my, you know, negative internal negativity and then eventually expanding that out to others. So, yeah, it was a very, very healing practice for me. I'm curious as to how you worked with uh, and perhaps are still working with, you know, recognizing. I mean, for me, I had to really recognize that I've been involved in really harmful things involved in, you know, drug trafficking and and I was uh, smuggling cocaine and. And, you know, originally I justified that with all kinds of us versus them thinking. And back in the 70s and early 80s, when I was involved, oh, we thought Coke was like a recreational drug. And 
actually it was creating tremendous harm in people's lives and society. And then, you know, once I was in prison, uh, we had a recovery group there and sitting in those meetings and listening to one man after another talk about their life completely unraveling around cocaine. I had to recognize that I had been involved in something really harmful. So I'm curious about for you what it was like to, you know, to embrace personal responsibility and maybe experience regret for past things and own all that without that turning into self-blame or self-shame, right? How do we balance, you know, uh, you know, feeling the regrets over past action and taking responsibility for our past and our future while, while not having that tip over into self-blame or self-shame. And so I'm sure the meta practice was a big part of that, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that balance between self-love and self-kindness and embracing responsibility responsibility for our own lives, for our past and our present and our future? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, when, when you experience uh, that type of loss and pain, and realize, I guess I, got, I, I, I began to start to realize that, you know, I was, I, I, I didn't know I was hurting people uh, when it came to the, the drugs. I, I hadn't really thought of it. I thought I was doing people a favor because I was so, um, you know, in love with drug use and things. And I thought it was my savior. Um, and I guess, you know, when it comes to like the regret and stuff like that, not, it, nowadays it doesn't really affect me, but I think like the, like the progression um, was understanding like my reasonings and changing my reasoning, like, you know, creating like this critical form, like this foundational thinking in Buddhism you know, following like the five precepts, understanding the truths and the path and how that correlates to my behavior, you know, and, and how my mind operates and uh, internalizing that and, and then utilizing it and then understanding that like my history and the damage that I caused, because I did cause a lot of damage and I do feel guilty about it. And uh, sometimes I'm faced with it and uh, it definitely hurts. But understanding that, now I'm doing something different and I give back, you know, like I, I work for a big company. I'm a recovery coach manager, which, um, you know, I seem to do well at that job. And, um, I have a nonprofit now that I started for people that are reentering into society, prison and, uh, people, uh, in, in early recovery or people that struggle with addiction. Um, and not on like, kind of like that selfish kick, but more of like the gaps, the gaps that exist and uh, in, in treatment and uh, social services out there, which I started noticing right away. I went three years, I've been out and like, I've had a lot of struggles um, and, you know, noticing these struggles and keying in on it, trying to find solutions so that, you know, people are put in a situation where they have to make survival decisions. And, um, mm -hmm. I think like that form of, of, of learning, um, in, in reasoning and understanding how not only I, I think and others think that they make these choices um, in being able to take my history, the, the suffering and pain, and, uh, you know, the experiences of the past and refocus it into a positive way is one of the things that makes me feel as like, as if I'm of use, like I'm doing something meaningful and worthwhile, which motivates me, you know, um, so the motivation's changed. And, uh, and so I don't hold any ill will against the past and myself because we're human beings and we're bound to make mistakes on this journey. 
That's great. That's great, Marshall. And I know you have a very strong service orientation today. I want to explore that more. And yeah, I think that is one of the, you know, the ways that we can put our past to rest um, is really by focusing on what we're doing now, right? You know, that we're living our lives now in a way that we feel good about and we feel like we're adding value and so forth. And, and yeah, we're all human beings and we make a lot of mistakes. And uh, so, and it's, you know, I can feel the meta practice in there that your, that your self-forgiveness and, and self-kindness uh, I can feel the meta practice coming through that. So that's, that's really wonderful. Um, so, um, so let's talk about getting out of prison. So you were in for 11, 11 and a half years, and then you got out. Did you go straight to the street? Did you go to a halfway house? What was it like getting out of prison for you? Um, getting out of prison was, well, like wonderful and amazing, but it was also a stressor because they put me in a halfway house in Boston. Um, new laws came out. So instead of having to do six months, I only had to do three months. But the second I hit the halfway house, like, you know, I started working like I had been working on trying to figure out like how I'm going to, you know, try to, you know, I've, I've got nothing. So I got to start, you know, getting to that next stage. You know, um, I remember like my uncle would get, gave, I, they let me go out and walk around in the city. My uncle gave me a bike. So I was riding a bike around. I got a job. I, I, I put in for home confinement at my aunt and uncle's house out in Western Mass. My uncle gave me a bike. I was riding bikes around, getting my food stamps, getting all the things I needed. Um, it was a hustle, man. I, it was a, it was a real hustle. And I had to ride to the train state. I got up at like 4am every day so I could get to my job out in Western Mass, out in, uh, Milford Mass, just because I was trying to force them to get me out of the halfway house and put me on home confinement. And, uh, I remember I burnt myself out so bad. I got sicker than I think I'd ever been sick before. I had to take an ambulance to the hospital because I couldn't breathe. Um, just from like, you know, the amount of like work that I was doing, just trying to get out of like that uncomfortable halfway house situation. They would make you document everything, write it. You have to write a list of everywhere you're going. Uh, you got to like text them every, you know, it, 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 it wasn't fun. And then uh, from there, I just, you know, you got to get your license, you get your IDs. I had all the paperwork. So I did that. That was a struggle. Um, and even when I was on home confinement, my own uncle, I got a, I had to get a job through a temp agency because um, the, probation required me to disclose to every employer that I'd been incarcerated, which didn't make sense, which, you know, I came across some roadblocks there. So I just went right through a temp agency, got a warehouse job, you know, started, you know, stacking my chips. And, uh, you know, I stayed with my aunt and uncle. They were great for like four months. And then my uncle's like, you know, it's all right. It's time for you to hit the road. You know, like, what are we moving on here, buddy? And I'd save some money. So I had to get, a, I got to roam out and, um, out in Milford. I, I didn't want to come back to the North Shore because that's where I'd been doing all my dirt. And I was afraid. I'm like, if I come back to the North Shore, then, you know, what if I get connected with old friends? And like, what if like there's an issue? I don't know. So I just was careful. But then COVID hit and I was working as a mechanic. I'd gotten this kind of cool mechanics job. I was doing a lot of welding and metal fab, which I learned in prison over there. And like the guy was paying me peanuts. And, um, he ended up putting me, I got sick. It wasn't COVID. I got an infection in my lungs and he put me on, um, uh, what do you call that? Uh, workman's comp or whatever. And then, uh, you know, I was, I was getting the COVID check and I came back to the North shore under the veil of COVID. And, um, I, I was making my, I wanted to get into treatment. 
I really wanted to work in one of the psychological fields and treatment just seemed like a good segue. You know, I had the psych, the associates in psych and, um, I couldn't get a job. Like people would put me on, they do the quarry, you know, they would tell me like, Oh, you know, you're be a great fit. Like they were dragging me out. So I'm collecting unemployment at the time. So I would, you know, a few agencies, I told them, I said, like, I can't just sit here and wait for you to get the okay from HR or the state or whatever to hire me. So I kept fielding around. I couldn't find a job. Someone told me to get a recovery coach certificate. It's like a two week training. And uh, I did that. And you know what? That was one of the most beneficial things I did. And I love the recovery coach training. I love the foundations of it. I hadn't learned a lot of motivational interviewing in my, my psych uh, studies. And I fell in love with that. And then um, my, my teacher liked me a lot and she helped me and she helped me get a job at like one of the uh, kind of detoxes, like the state one of detoxes. And um, that's where I started. And then from there, I didn't like the detox because of how some of like the nurses, and the staff would treat the clients, um, you know, and they would treat me too. You know, it's like, they kind of like treated me as, and I guess that was kind of like, you know, some of the stigma of like recovery specialists working on the floor is that like they're oh they're just people in recovery that have no education and we can just treat them however however we want which was unpleasant so i went from there i started looking around and i got a job with this wicked cool company that i would because i've been you know networking i have a big networker networking through the recovery community it was called uh, aware recovery care and um they do in-home treatment and so it's like a year-long program. You get a team of four people, two recovery coaches, a nurse, a family educator, and they work with a person in their recovery in the home. And they work from that kind of like small family home dynamic. And then we connect them outwards, you know, to different, you know, AA, whatever, it's multiple pathways, whatever support group they're interested in, in the community, we do activities. So like I ended up getting that job. And it was a new agency in the Massachusetts, which is now the biggest agency in the company. And, uh, you know, I just really hustled and they ended up making me a manager. And now I oversee um, Middlesex, I oversee Middlesex County, and I manage all the CRAs in that area. And it's, uh, it's a, it, you know, it's a remote job. So it's either I'm seeing clients or I'm working with other recovery coaches. And within that time at the detox, I started the nonprofit and, um, uh, because it was during COVID and like what they did is they shut down all the meetings and people were having relapses like crazy. And I was like, well, like let's put together some events, some activities. We do stuff like COVID friendly, like walks and things like that, you know, um, you know, trying to keep people active, do bike rides and stuff just so people could get out and do something. Yeah. I want to talk, I want to say more about your nonprofit in a moment, you know, but first of all, I just want to really acknowledge that, you know, this, that you, you hung in through that struggle of getting out. You know, I, I'll never forget that period. I was, you know, in a halfway house and uh, I was able to get in home confinement after three months. So I did three months in halfway house, three months in home confinement. And I was at risk of violating all the time, not because of any bad intent. I came out with a really positive attitude and good support from, you know, the Buddhist community that I was connected with. But those, it just seemed like the places were almost set up to make you fail. They had all these crazy rules. You had to document everything. And, and, you know, they wouldn't even show you the rule book. You know, it was like a thousand rules, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, my uh, my my good friend, our executive director of, of prison Dharma Network, uh, Vita, bailed me out a couple of times just by driving over and picking me up to get me from one place to another. So I wouldn't get violated because, you know, trying to keep up with their crazy system. And 
And I almost went back to prison when I slept through a phone monitor call uh, where I was once I was on home confinement. You know, I just didn't hear the call. And then in the morning I saw the message light was on my phone. I called and she said, I don't believe you. You weren't there and blah, blah, blah. And fortunately, it was a weekend and and the halfway house or the, the reporting company executive was out of town. So by Monday, uh, when he got back and then they called the feds, uh, the feds decided, well, you've been back on a clock for two days. We're not going to send you back. But they said, you're lucky because they should have called us directly and you should have gone back already. So it was like a crazy system. So I, I, re- I really understand that. And, and you, you, you know, you kind of worked your way through that and got into uh, got yourself into the recovery field and the treatment field and got yourself trained with motivational interviewing and so forth. And then uh, now you find yourself as a manager with this. Uh, it's called awareness recovery. It's called aware recovery care. Aware recovery. Yeah. Yeah. That's fabulous. I mean, I, I mean, it's just um, I mean, I, I just don't I think people don't often realize how heroic it is really uh, to, I mean, you're just doing what you got to do to survive, but still, you know, the, there's a lot of things stacked up against you when you get out like that. And and for you to do that and get yourself into where you're a, you're a recovery professional now, it's just, I think it's just so admirable and, and uh, really uh, just enjoy sharing in that with you and want to really congratulate you on that. So tell us about your, your nonprofit that you started. So the nonprofit is called Tiffany's Recovery Incorporated. It's named after my sister who died of a drug overdose. Mm. Um, and the abbreviation is TRI, T-R-I. Like, you know, like three has like a lot of significance in Buddhism in a lot of places. And I just liked it. And I like just, we call it TRI Recovery. You know, it's just kind of like <laughs> funny. But um, so we started it with the idea of opening up like more options as far as like recovery based like events and activities um we were you know i I was working on it with um my professor for the recovery coach because like she was really passionate about it we didn't have a support like that we had all kinds of clinical supports but we didn't have like a community support so and you know i started a nonprofit 501c3 is a struggle like you know like it was three of us working on it. Um, the treasurer is in business. You know, he's got a real good um, college education. So he was able to connect us with a nonprofit uh, lawyers clearinghouse. We got a pro bono lawyer through them. You know, we got the 501c3 in under a year. Um, and like kind of developing programming was a struggle. Um, we're at a stage now, you know, like we did like a lot of events and activities, but we would find is there'd be like sporadic attendance. It was a lot of work. Um, you have to do all the writing. That's so like, we're doing everything ourselves. Like um, I had an accountant that was a volunteer accountant, a friend of mine forever. He ended up kind of like just, you know, ghosting us. So we ended up adding to the taxes um, for the first year after the fundraiser. That was uh that was a struggle. So what we've done is now we've developed more into like outreach stuff and like on the technical end. So we created like the websites. Um, the idea of the websites is to be able to have like the calendar to list all the events that are happening within like, you know, Massachusetts mainly. Um, and then from there, you know, we have some of the resources and then we just kind of like run projects, mainly like outreach projects. Um, Dharma outreach is one of our projects. Uh, and it's a, 
you know, it's a Buddhist-based project. I have a, a, a Theravada Buddhist monk that is working as the director of that. And what we do is we go out and we do like commitments, like you see out in the recovery world, which is just, um, you know, we, you know, the, the, the monk that's working on this, um, he's got a history of addiction with crack and alcohol and had a lot of legal troubles in his life, became an ordained uh, monk in Thailand and uh, earned his independence there. And uh, so he'll go and be able to relate with people, but talk about, you know, the practicalities of Buddhist practice and uh, to disadvantaged populations. Like he goes to St. Francis House, um, the, the day shelter in Boston. He'll do commitments. Like he has a regular commitment at Danvers Detox, which is people coming like right off of Mass Ave and stuff. That's where I used to work. Um, he's been to Ball Pay, um, you know, and he's been to a few other places. And uh, the idea is to, to build out more like facilitators, people that uh, have, you know, knowledge of Buddhism, some form of Buddhism. But we're not really concerned about the sectarianism and Buddhism, but people that can share some of the practices and teach people about Buddhism, you know, in a sense so that they can learn about it. People that are disadvantaged because, uh, and the reason for the Dharma outreach. The reason I did that is because I do the outreach out on Mass Ave and I saw all these Christian organizations. I didn't see one Buddhist organization. Um, so we got that. Um, we also have uh, Prison of Prosperity. I started a support group for ex-incarcerated men uh, about a year ago with this a LADAC, uh, licensed drug and alcohol counselor, this guy Tommy that was like doing time back in like the 60s and 70s. Um, and he's a great guy. And it's just a, a group of men. We have a solid group of guys. Um, a lot of, some of them were the childhood lifers, the ones that got their life sentences overturned because of a new law saying that it's unconstitutional to give people uh, life um, when they're under 21. And uh, so these guys, we meet up, it's like an AA group. Um, I've been developing a platform so that we can use it as a group that's going to be um, supported through the nonprofit and, uh, Know, for people that were ex-incarcerated with substance use issues and things of that nature, I guess that's not a requisite. But uh, so they can, you know, have that support group for themselves. But they, we can also kind of like network out resources and things to help people if they need any assistance. And that group has been like that. That's one of my, that's my baby. And uh, there's probably like eleven guys that consistently show up, and they've just all done amazingly well. Um, we haven't had one person recidivate in that group and everybody in that group is high risk, including myself. So um, mm -hmm. that's been amazing. So prison of prosperity is a project through the nonprofit. And then the book donation, uh, institutional book donation uh, project is we take books like any books that are like recovery based, self-help, spiritual, philosophical, inspirational. And uh, we just donate them to like detoxes, institutions, places uh, of that nature. And, um, you know, that's been that's been really cool. So, wow, it's so great. It's, it's, it's really inspiring. It's, and what what's the website for your nonprofit so people can learn more about it? Tiffany's Recovery Inc dot com. And if people want to support your work, is there some way on the website people can make donations? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we are a 501c3, and um, there's a donation page, and they can reach out to us. They can become members. Um, yeah, that would 
be great. Yeah, don't get me talking about tribe fleet. I'm going to get all excited, you know. Over here. Well, it's your passion. It's your baby. I, I can feel the passion coming through. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is so great, Marshall. It's such an inspiring story. I got one last, we're, we're at the end of our time here, but I just have one last story. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, I think uh, for some people to get involved in Buddhist practice, uh, meditation and Buddhist practice uh, in prison, sometimes it's a struggle to find communities on the outside they can connect with. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes a lot of uh, Buddhist communities, meditation centers, maybe they're out in the suburbs or they're kind of, you know, middle, even upper middle class. People are super educated and things like that. And people get out of prison, they don't connect or whatever. What, what was it like for you to find a community? Have you found a community to continue your own Buddhist path? So that's a really good question. So when I was in Boston, I was riding my bike all around to these different Buddhist places. And um, it was real hard to connect. Um, I remember like it was over in um, it was one of the meditation centers, I think, in like Somerville or something. They had uh, uh, they were doing a retreat. And like, I, I went in there to talk and she's like, Oh no, we're doing a retreat. Like shuffled me out. You know, I went to this one center out like in, um, Rafton, which is like a Bihara, it's Darabad, Sri Lankan. And the monk did his talk. He spoke, he spoke broken English. I could, I knew what he was talking about. I don't think a lot of people in there could understand him. I just, because I studied like, you know, for quite a while, but, uh, I went to, I went to shake his hand and he pulled his hand from me. Um, and then I felt, you know, I know that. Sure. Me. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, like I, I really like really networked and tried to connect with people. It was during COVID, so like people really weren't doing a lot. I will give a shout out to Tree Ratna because uh, one one of their members used to visit the prison, so I'm connected with them. I visited them a few times. I, I, I like that group. Um, they've been supportive, uh, but I haven't like like locally like in my area. Uh, there's another uh, Buddhist Zen Buddhist out here, and like. You know, she, she jumps on a lot of like political causes and stuff like that. And I really try to avoid that. Like I stay neutral, you know, in, in my practice. I don't want to, that's something I'm not really interested in. So I've really struggled to find, um, I am connected to another um, Tibetan um, center that just recently moved here. And um, so I keep an eye on them. Um, I like them a lot. So yeah, I've networked around, but I haven't found my home. Completely. Like I haven't found like a, my you know, my a place to hang my hat as far as uh, <laughs> Buddhism goes in my area. Well, I hope you do, but it sounds like maybe you're creating your own place to hang your hat as well. So, uh, yeah, but stay connected with us, uh, Marshall. You know, we really uh, we really want to support your work. And, you know, Prison Dharma Network is nationally international, but we happen to be based here in, in Massachusetts. So we're neighbors. Right. So. So uh, we want to want to continue to support you and support what you're doing. And uh, yeah. And, you know, just, you know, to our audience. So one of the messages I think here is that I think, you know, Buddhist communities and meditation communities all over the country, we could do a better job at opening our doors to people coming out of prison and out of homelessness and out of addiction and, you know, out of the out of the various life struggles that so many of us get caught up in. And uh, um, yeah, I think, I think as, as a, as a movement, you know, Western Buddhism needs to do a better job than that. And, uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're able to, to, to speak that. Cause I think that's one of the things that I hope that this, um, one of the impacts that I hope this summit will have is just raising awareness around the whole prison Dharma, prison meditation movement. And, uh, 
and how important it is and and uh how the larger kind of meta buddhist sangha which in, and has been many and really involved in this in in so many ways but when it gets down to actual centers and actual communities sometimes there can still be a lot of barriers uh that people experience uh whether it's around socioeconomic status or race or gender expression or coming out of prison or whatever it is so i i just hope we can all become more open and and embracing and i just really want to thank you for being part of our summit marshall and really want to just really inspiring to learn about you and your story and the work you're doing now and and congratulations on that thank you fleet so much and uh the beauty of buddhism is these teachings are open for all um and i just want to i give a shout out to uh, my wonderful girlfriend who's been so supportive and uh with everything uh samantha mccourt i just really want to I want to highlight that, you know, sometimes I don't, I, sometimes I don't mention, you know, the people that have really, you know, are responsible for my own personal success. Yeah. There's always, there's always, none of us do it alone. So I'm glad you got that support. Well, you take care Marshall and uh, let's stay in touch. All right. Thanks. Lee. It was good meeting you finally. Good meeting you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.